Hello and welcome to the St Mark's podcast. Whether you regularly join us at church on Sundays or you're joining us for the very first time, we hope that this week's talk inspires you and draws you closer to Jesus. So the first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The second reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transported, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Well, uh, morning everyone, good to see you. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Matt, uh, I'm the vicar here uh, at St. Mark's. And uh, this term we've been going through a series called Seeing Jesus. So if it's your first time here today, then you're picking up at the very end, but I'm going to do a super quick recap for us. And we've been looking through some of the windows of the Old Testament scriptures in the Bible to see how Jesus was concealed, but how in the New Testament you see how he is revealed through all of the scriptures. And in this series, we've been looking at some of the characters that are written about in the Bible who foreshadow the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah that was foretold in there. And the Messiah is revealed in the person of Jesus, in Jesus Christ that we see in the New Testament. People like Noah and Moses and David pointing the way towards Jesus, and there are so many more, of course, as well. Then as we continue through the Seeing Jesus series, we looked at some key themes that run throughout the Bible, including God's covenant, the the promise that he made to bring us into a relationship with him. Uh, We looked at the presence of God among us. We looked at the kingdom of God in our midst. We looked at God's salvation offered at Christ's expense for us. And today we finish by looking at the golden thread of worship that goes throughout the scriptures. Now, you'd have met uh, Ben, who was uh, leading worship here just a moment ago, and he's talked about worship here before at St. Mark's. So it won't be the first time that we've talked about worship from the front of church. And we like having good, like, worship, good sung worship at the front of church, don't we? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) He's smiling. That's good. Um, (laughs) And we have worship every week here at St. Mark's. In fact, it sort of is the golden thread that runs through what we do. We have sung worship at our services, Uh, we have it in our small gatherings, we have worship at every single Alpha session because it gives a little bit of a flavor of what it means to come into the presence of God and uh, to be church together. Worship is one of those key ingredients. Uh, And this week, many of us are going to witness something really incredible as we get to worship with literally thousands of others at focus in the big top. I remember last year, Samantha came to Focus for the day, and she had only just sort of become a Christian, and she came to Focus, and she came into the big top. 
and she was absolutely blown away as we worshipped and as we prayed. And I said to her afterwards, I said, what was your highlight of focus? She said, I've never seen so many Christians in my life, and I've never had an opportunity to worship with and pray with so many. And for her, I mean, she almost couldn't find the words. It's a beautiful thing when we get to worship together in a place like that. And I can remember uh, as a teenager going to a sort of a Christian summer festival called Soul Survivor, and um, as a teenager worshiping in the big top in this huge tent, like a big circus tent, uh, with about 10,000 others. And there was this moment where we'd been singing worship and the worship just stopped and people started singing out in, in, in tongues and, and spiritual songs. And the worship just continued to drift up in this place as the, the presence of God literally filled the tent around us. And I can remember seeing as I looked up in my mind's eye, like angels gathered around the top of the tent as we, we sung. And it was like heaven was invading earth as we, we worshipped. And, and the worship of heaven and the worship of earth in this field in Somerset were connected. And it was a a powerful, powerful moment of encounter. The presence of God falls when we press in, in worship. John Wimber was an American pastor and founding leader of the Vineyard Movement. And he had a huge influence on the charismatic movement within the UK church, as well as throughout the world. And he would often start his sort of his gatherings uh, for teaching and, and ministry with sort of 30 to 40 minutes of song worship. And he'd say to, to people, look, if you need to go and get a coffee or you, you don't particularly like a song or you just need to step outside and get some fresh air, that's fine. You can go do that. But we're going to worship for 30 to 40 minutes. But why start with such an intense time, such a long time of worship? Well, John would say that the worship wasn't for the sort of congregation's pleasure. It wasn't necessarily because we ought to worship Jesus, that's what we're meant to do. The worship, John would say, was for the benefit of him and his team. Because he would say he simply couldn't teach, nor his team minister, until they'd first been in the presence of God. Until they had ministered to God and been ministered to by God. And it was from this place of exchange, this place of presence, that the ministry, the real stuff happened. And it did happen. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a, a beautiful thing, a powerful thing. And in many of those meetings, many people came to Christ. Many people were, were healed. Many people were set free from all sorts of chains that bound them. You see, worship is directly connected to the presence of God. And it's our longing for God's presence and our response to God's presence and a way of ushering in God's presence. And that's what makes worship a, a truly transformative place to be when the presence of God is in that place. So when we come to church, when we do worship together, how do we approach it? What goes through your mind? Do you rate the songs on personal preference? Do you time how long it will be until the next bit of the service? Perhaps you're sort of clocking out a little bit when it's time for a break. We all do this, by the way, including me. I'm sure I spent most of my childhood in church working through the order of service, ticking off the different sections until we could go home and have lunch. But I guess my challenge for each of us, my desire for each of us is this. 
to allow worship to move us into a place of exchange with the living God as we long for his presence, as we respond to his presence among us, and as we usher in the presence of God so that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. I wonder, would you like to be a part of that sort of experience of worship? So let's press in this morning, and let me just begin by asking the question, where did it all start, this idea of worship in the presence of God being connected? Well, if you've been here for a few of these Seeing Jesus sermons, you'll know the answer to this, because it's the same answer every time. It started at the very beginning, and we see it in Genesis, in Eden. At the creation of humanity, Adam and Eve enjoyed being in the presence of God among them in that garden. And they had a choice. They could enjoy all that paradise had to offer them, apart from doing one thing, and that was in one tree. God said, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by the way, if you're thinking, oh, the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, you're not going to find that down the, down the fruit and veg aisle of Aldi, by the way. But I, I challenge you to ask and see what the response is. But what did they do? They had that choice to enjoy paradise, but they, they did something different. They took that fruit, and then they started to hide from God, and they started to hide from one another, and they were ashamed. That close presence, that close relationship with God and neighbor got severed, and they were ashamed, and they went, and they hid. And at the very heart of their, what we call sin, that, that shortcoming, was the choice to turn from worshiping God, the creator, to the worship of creation, the created, from creator to created. And here's the thing with worship. You can't, you can't worship both creator and created thing with all devotion. Pure devotion is either one or the other. We were made to worship. We were made to worship. And whether you are a Christian or not, everyone worships something. We might say that our object of worship is the thing we spend most of our time on or spend most of our money on or the thing we go to bed dreaming about? What is it the thing in your life that matters absolutely most to you? And as we go through the Old Testament scriptures, we see that worship, moving away from the creator towards the created, is given a name, and it's called idolatry. It's not a particularly like, attractive name, but God gives it a name. He says it's idolatry. And that's the battle that every human faces. No one, no one worships nothing. Some people might say, well, I don't worship anything. I don't have a faith. I'm not religious. I don't worship anything. But it's either God or you end up worshiping everything else. And back then, as we think of idolatry, maybe the picture that pings into your mind is like a little carved wooden idol. You think, oh, that was idolatry. They were like, they were making little statues and making little shrines and all of that. And today, it might be that. I mean, you just go into HomeSense and see the sort of things that you can buy and take home, little idols for your mantelpiece. But today, it's more likely to be things like, I don't know, maybe celebrities, maybe more like social media influencers or designer labels or money, sex, power, or simply ourselves. And many of these things, nothing wrong in themselves, but do they end up taking the center point? Do they become the most important things in our lives? But does God leave it there? He doesn't leave it there. What does God do to draw his people back to him, their creator and their sustainer? 
Well, he sets out a law in his covenant. We looked at covenant a few weeks back. And he tells his people this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 that Sharon read for us. This is the snippet I want us to remember. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In other words, with all that you are, love the God who loves you. And this wasn't some sort of oppressive law. Sometimes we can look at those laws and go, oh, they're so mean. God's being so mean. He's trying to force these laws on us. If they were some sort of oppressive law, that would make the Israelites, God's people, slaves to loving God. You love God because you have to. However, they didn't love God because they were being oppressed. They loved God because they loved God. They wanted to. It was an expression of their love for the God who loves them. I don't know whether you've ever been brave enough to tackle the book of Leviticus. If you've ever tried getting into reading your Bible and you've got to Leviticus in the Old Testament, um, sometimes it's quite a hard one to read. But it has loads of different sort of ways and laws around how the people were to worship God. And sort of going through all of these different requirements of, of worship, um, you know, there were things that had to be fulfilled. And we're not talking about like we do, gather at 10, stick your hand in the air for a moment in worship and, and all is well. This was very, very specific. And in summary of Leviticus, the primary way that God's people worshipped God, their creator, was through offering sacrifices. So whether it was a goat or some doves or a bag of grain, the offering always went up in smoke. Imagine like a massive barbecue. They would bring the offering, they would put it there and up it would go in smoke. And you might be thinking, well, what has a ginormous barbecue got to do with worship? Well, if we think back to what happened at the very start, what happened in Genesis, worship moved from the creator to the created. And sacrifices were a very real and very tangible and costly way of saying to God, we worship you, the creator, and we put you above these created things. So they take the things that are most important to them in their lives, and they say, God, I'm going to lay this down on the altar as a sacrifice because you, God, these things came from you. I'm going to offer them down. I'm going to realign my worship lifestyle to say, God, I love you over created things. But they were a sucker for worshiping idols. Just read through the Old Testament and you'll see that. They were terrible worshippers. And their lust for idols really did ruin their relationship with the God who loved them. I mean, even David. David is sort of like one of these hero figures of the Old Testament in the Bible. He wrote half the Psalms. He offered thousands of sacrifices to God. And yet he still fell. He committed adultery. And adultery is idolatry because it, it's worshipping and loving the created over the creator. Even people like David couldn't bring a perfect sacrifice. Even David... He wrote the Psalms, couldn't bring perfect worship. God was looking for perfect worshippers, and they didn't make the cut. Not one of them could make the cut until Jesus, until Jesus. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, went to the cross, and having been failed by his closest friends, denied, abandoned, and betrayed, still went to the cross and offered the perfect sacrifice the perfect act of worship to his heavenly father. It's captured best, I think, in Hebrews 10, verse 12. Jesus' offering on the cross, on the altar of sacrifice, is descri described as the all-time 
one sacrifice for sins. The all-time one sacrifice for sins. Not a grain offering, not some doves, not even a goat. Jesus Christ became the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world on that cross. Jesus, the perfect worshiper, makes the perfect sacrifice on behalf of a multitude of imperfect worshipers, including us. Now, Jesus Christ was the only human being who truly loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. His love was perfect. His worship was perfect. His whole life was lived in perfect obedience to God. So where does that leave us today as we gather here in St. Mark's in 2023? Well, we no longer need to make sacrifices on the altar that will go up in smoke. Jesus has done that once and for all for everyone who is in Christ. If you've trusted Jesus with your life, if you've said, I can't do this life in my own strength, I don't want to rely on myself, Jesus, you can have it all. I'm going to lean on you and trust in you. Then, then you are covered. He's gone to the cross. He's made the perfect sacrifice for you. You don't need to make an offering to atone for your shortcomings because he has done it for you. We're not slaves to worship. So we don't have to worship because God says, because I've done this for you, you now need to worship. We worship in view of God's mercy because God loves us. God loves you. How do you know that? He's demonstrated it by going to the cross for you, for me by being the sacrifice that you and I could never make. And our natural response to that incredible love is is to worship. Our natural response to that is to worship. And so when we think of worship today as a few songs to launch us in our service and a little bit at the end, that can end up feeling a little bit shallow. Rather, worship is no different to how it really was, the heart of worship in the Old Testament. The whole point of worship was it was a way of life. For Jesus, it was all of his life. And so for all who are in Christ, worship becomes our very lifestyle. Worship is our very lifestyle. So what do we do now? What's our response to be? If worship is our lifestyle, should we just do away with the worship and the worship pastor. Say goodbye to Ben. Ben, we've changed our minds. We don't need that anymore. We're going to live worship by our lifestyle. Should we? No. (laughs) No. Because as well as a lifestyle, worship also involves specific acts of devotion. And both go together to stir our longing for God's presence, to cause us to respond to his presence and to usher in the presence lifestyle and acts of devotion. And we see acts of devotion again threaded throughout the scriptures. Let me just give us a tiny taster of a few. At the dedication of the temple of Solomon, they worshiped and they made huge sacrifices. Remember, this is before Jesus went to the cross and they sacrificed, it says, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what that looked like. I'm really sorry if you're vegetarian or vegan. And that's a traumatic picture for you. But that's what they did, 2 Chronicles 7. And they also, and get this, they also sang 
He is good. God is good. His love endures forever. There was this mass overflow. They bought their accumulated wealth and they threw it on the altar and they said, because God is good and his love endures forever. When the Magi came to visit the Christ child, what did they do? They bowed down and they worshipped him. Matthew 2:11. At the end of scriptures, Revelations 4 and 5, we see this beautiful picture of this multitude of worship. And in our own lives of worship, in view of God's mercy, we're to express our devotion through all sorts of acts of physical activity. Perhaps in schools, they ought to combine collective worship with PE if they were really doing it properly. Because in the Bible, it seems to involve all sorts of activity, singing, clapping, dancing, lifting of the eyes, lifting of the head, lifting of the hands, standing, kneeling, falling face down, wearing sackcloth and ashes. It would make for an interesting sports day, I think. You could lose the sack race for the sackcloth and ashes race. But what is it that gets us responding in this way, that physically we want to respond in worship? Well, we may think that it's simply the overflow of gratitude for all that God has done for us. It's like my kids on their, their birthdays, they're like, they're bouncing around, they're so excited and the presents come out and the cards come out and they're just like bouncing around with such joy. Maybe that's what worship is for us. It's an overflow of gratitude. But perhaps the greatest picture comes at the end of the scriptures in Revelation 4 and 5. We see a snapshot of the worship of heaven and it's beyond what we're going to experience at Focus later this week. Because in those passages, in Revelation 4 and 5, there's color, there's light, lighting, there is sound, there is thunder and lightning, there are rainbows, emeralds, and the throwing down of crowns. You may have noticed that in one of the songs we sang earlier, a reflection of that very passage. And then there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels and the whole of creation worshiping Jesus. So if you start getting twitchy in church when the person next to you gets a little bit too expressive in their worship, heaven might not be for you because it's going to be completely bonkers. But it's not all about the show. Rather, it's about the star of the show. The star of the show, the object, the very reason for our worship is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And in Revelation 5 and 6 says this, it says, looking as if he had been slain, or it had been slain, the Lamb of God, standing at the center of the throne. And, and this sort of multitude gathers around Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and he is worshipped. And the multitude sing out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And there is this cycle of worship as such we could never experience this side of the heavenlies in all its fullness. And so if our worship down here on earth is not ultimately to him and for him and about him, then it's all a load of pointless noise. Worship is about our lifestyle, how we conduct ourselves, our response to what God has done. Worship is also about our acts of devotion, and they need to be always to him, for him, and about him. Because without him, without his presence, we're lost. Without his presence, we 
stand awaiting judgment for our lives of idolatry when we've gone off and worshipped elsewhere. But with him, the sacrifice is made, the debt is paid, and we are free. There's nothing greater than being set free in Christ. Let me just take us back to that story of John Wimber as he was ministering to people and his 30 to 40 minutes of worship. Although I'm not saying that we need to shoehorn in 40 minutes of worship on a Sunday morning before we start, what I am saying is that we should pursue, above all else, the presence of God in our midst. Because worship and the presence of God seem to be intrinsically linked in Scripture. And worship is a response to the manifest presence of God. And it ushers in the presence of God. We see that when God's people lived in the wilderness back in the days of Moses, before the tabernacle was built, Moses would pitch a tent and the presence of God would descend like a cloud among them. In Exodus 33.10 we read, wherever the people saw a pillar of cloud, whenever people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and they worshipped each at the entrance to their own tents. I'd encourage you to read the Psalms and see just how David gets lost in the presence of God in worship. Many of his words in the Psalms ooze this sort of encounter and meeting with God in this beautiful exchange. And then we see a pattern of worship that continues in the building of the temple as the people worship God. And God's presence falls and the people stop working and they start worshiping again. We see worship calling the, uh, causing the walls of Jericho to fall and enemy armies to be defeated. It is the presence of God at Pentecost where the apostles are meeting to pray together and boom, the presence of God flows out from the gathering and out into the streets. And when we gather to pray and we gather to worship, the manifest presence of God moves in and all heaven breaks loose. One of our first services here when we relaunched St. Mark's, we had an adult baptism and we had the pool out And we were worshipping and we were praying. And we simply asked the Holy Spirit to come, as we do every Sunday, we're going to in just a moment. We prayed, come Holy Spirit. And the the Spirit was ministering as the presence of God fell in this place. And, And one lady, a lady called Pat, came up afterwards and she said, as we prayed that prayer, come Holy Spirit, she said, the chronic back pain I've had for years literally left me. I've been healed. She said, not only that, I've had some words of knowledge for the baptism candidate. She said, I've not heard God speak to me like this for many, many years, but it's come to me as clear as day. And she came and she encouraged them. We hadn't mentioned specifically healing. We hadn't specifically mentioned words of knowledge. We had prayed and worshipped and invited the Spirit of God, and the Spirit had ministered to her in a profound way. She found healing. She found freedom. That's what starts to happen when the presence of God comes. The real ministry happens. The real ministry isn't trained people laying on hands. The ministry belongs to the Holy Spirit. And that's when things start to happen and heaven breaks loose. So God has called us to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. We do this by bringing an offering to him our whole lives, a spiritual offering, and worship becomes our lifestyle. And we are to bring acts of devotion as we long for his presence, as we respond to his presence as we usher in his presence, so that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And as we do, 
We see the kingdom of heaven breaking out around us. The people of our community come to encounter the presence of the living God. The more we do it, the more people will find healing. The more people will be set free from addiction. People will be drawn to the star of the show, the perfect worshiper, the perfect sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus Christ, the one who transforms lives and communities. Come, Lord Jesus. Why don't we pray? Can I invite you to stand?